Good afternoon. Oh, yes, it works. Excellent. <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming to our inaugural Dryden Roundtable. This is something that we're hoping to do, at least at this point, about every mo other month or so. And we thought the uh, easiest thing to do or the lowest hanging fruit would be to talk about the Academy Awards uh, for this year. Mm -hmm. So I have a distinguished panel of film critics with me today. Uh, from left to right, you've got Adam Lubito. Matthew Passantino, and David Palmer. So please give them a big Dryden welcome. So I wanted to talk first about your history with the awards uh, and uh, how that's evolved over time. Let's start with uh, David. All right. Since you're the awards guy. Yeah. Um, so just really just loving movies and growing up with the movies, just kind of followed it. And um, just more and more as you, know, you get older, there's more to pay attention, especially in the last 10 years where I guess, you know, more than that, but with social media, it kind of really changed like how up to date you can be following the awards and how like the analytics that really go into it. I think sports and uh, everything's kind of taken the analytic aspects into account. So it's just made it more interesting. And then the last couple of years have kind of been obvious, I guess, award winners. We haven't as much of a shakeup, which is why this year is really fun. So, so it's just something that just, you develop over time, you just kind of more and more pay attention, find the little isms that make, make the whole season interesting. Matt? Um, my first Oscars was the year Chicago won. And so that was the 2002, held in 2003. Um, and then I, I just, I've watched them ever since, because you know, like Dave said, just always been interested in movies, always watching movies, and then just kind of stumbled into this fancy event that awards movies and I've so I've been watching ever since so I, I've progressed from the days of recording them on VHS <laughs> so I can go back and watch them like it's you know the zap reader tape or something like and analyze everybody's uh reactions to everything and I've been watching ever since and I mean the social media aspect makes it a little interesting because everyone like you were saying everyone gets very tribal about what movies yeah. they like and um so that makes it a little interesting, but um, yeah. So that's been my 2002 on forward. Adam? Uh, I feel like I've always been a movie fan, so I've always kind of paid attention to the Oscars, but I feel like I have a complicated relationship with the Oscars just by their nature of, you know, the entire concept of evaluating and ranking art. I feel like by its, you know, very nature, like, how do you do that? And I feel like the Oscars have always gotten it wrong as, <laughs> as often as they've gotten it right. I mean, I don't think I'm the first person to say, you know, you can make a list of the greatest movies of all time just from the things that didn't get any nominations. And so I, I, I feel like I like them more as uh, entertainment in themselves than anything else. And I enjoy talking about them, but I don't put a whole lot of stock in, you know, what they award, this is the best, whether that's actually the best, I don't really, I don't really hold to. Well, I am probably the oldest here on the panel, so I actually remember when the Oscars were on Mondays in March, and uh, as a high schooler, I, I, I found this recently. This goes all the way up to 1987, <laughs> and this was my book, my Bible, for a while while I was in high school. Uh, but it was uh, definitely you know, a, a, a way to at least have an indication of what good films are. 
something to push you in forward of, of, of what to watch as opposed to what not to watch. Uh, and I agree, you know, the, the uh, history with it has become complicated over the years as I've seen more films and I tend to disagree with the Oscars more. Um, but uh, in 2016, I actually had the opportunity to attend the Oscars. It's good to uh, have people that you know out in Los Angeles that work at the <laughs> Academy Film Archive. So I got an invitation. I couldn't pat turn that down. And that was uh, the year that uh, Spotlight uh, won for Best Picture and Mad Max was uh, getting all of those uh, lesser nominations. So that sort of sparked a another interest. And it's it's, it's been a really great year. I think the Oscars have gotten a lot right this year, uh, at least in, in terms of uh, comparing it to things that are not right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, this year's Oscars. And uh, there's a specific rule change that I know that David brought up uh, very specifically that uh, we want to talk about. Um, yeah, so up until 2000, I think 2008 was the last time, it was always five best pictures. And then the main reason they changed it the following year was because The Dark Knight, which got uh, a lot of precursors, like the we got a PGA, a Producers Guild nomination, um, one of the you know highest grossing films, best reviewed films, everyone loved it. It got a slew of nominations, Heath Ledger and um, I think Cinematography won, um, and, but it didn't get a Best Picture. And so it, it was kind of shoehorned in that five slots. And the next year they made a mandated 10 and that's when you get things like the bright side, or not the bright side, blind side. <laughs> uh, the uh, Michael Orr football story, which is what Sandra Bullock won her Oscar for. But it's a feel-good movie, and I really like it, but it's not necessarily an Academy Award for Best Picture. So then a year or two after that, they went to a most 10, doesn't have to be 10, based on how many votes. We've had years we've had eight, we've had years we've had nine nominees. And this past year, they went back to 10 uh, mandated ones. And so that's how we kind of... Um, we're able to get such a, this year more than I think any in recent years, it was a very diverse palette of films. Um, we have the, the typical Oscar players like the Tars, um, Fablemans, All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, but it also allowed for like Avatar and Top Gun to get in. And, um, you know, something weird like Triangle of Sadness, uh, Elvis, um, and then obviously just around the uh, Banshees and uh, Woman Talking and everything everywhere all at once, which I'm sure will be discussing a lot but um so it kind of just allowed for this new diverse uh shakeup of the the best picture slate having the mandate of 10. Um, i'm not sure if it cheapens it that every other category has five nominations and the pictures have 10. um i do think five is too little so i, I like that that seven to eight range but i thought that was just an interesting thing to, to talk about for today having the mandate of 10 how did that change maybe the the slate we got well, I think that certainly allows something like Top Gun or Avatar to get in the mix, uh, along with the sort of uh, more critically acclaimed films as well. Uh, any thoughts on the uh, change to 10 nominations? Um, I, I agree that I feel like, yeah, the expansion allows them to, to squeeze in some more movies, even if it's, it's never the, like the really small indie stuff. I feel like it was mainly getting in like the the blockbusters, which uh, previously, you know, weren't considered, you know, worthy of of awards, and now it's it's a way to recognize those. But I, I wish they would use some of those spots to to do some really interesting movies. But eh, it's the Oscars. <laughs> well, it was really driven by ratings, right? You know, they really wanted to have some bigger titles uh, in the nominations to attract viewers back yeah. to the program, which has been declining in viewership drastically over the last few years. And yeah, I sort of, it took the spot of when they 
tried to just to make a separate category for most popular film right. <laughs> uh, a couple of years back. Um, and I feel like that the extra slots like ser- serve that purpose at this point. The Blockbuster Awards else. have that covered. Yeah. <laughs> MTV Music Award, Movie Awards. <laughs> um, I, do th- I do think it's, it's interesting to say, would a film like Top Gun or Avatar 2 get in if we kept the same rules where they don't have to have the mandate attend? Um, I don't think either of those were the 9, 10 slots. Hmm. So I think that they would have made it in a normal year. But it, does, it definitely, I think, because the point of the Oscars, they used to, like you look at uh, Lord of the Rings, got nominated, nominated, and then won for Return of the King, something like Chicago. So you have these movies that are these big crowd pleasers. Um, and then in years past, maybe we've had Marvel movies, which, as fun as they are, aren't necessarily best picture quality. And so now we have kind of the popular... Citizen Award, I guess, popular with uh, theater goers, movie goers, and then also the Academy, which loves to be, you know, snobby and pat itself on the back <laughs> sometimes. But this may, this year may also indicate rule changes in the future, particularly with the, the kerfuffle over the Andrea Riesboro nomination. Uh, Matt, can you tell us about what happened there? So. This movie to Leslie, which Andrea Riceboro was nominated for, it it kind of came about that some friends of hers were getting the word out, friends in Hollywood were getting the word out and about this movie and tweeting about it. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with that yeah. um, because I think that there's so many movies that pay for fancy billboards and fancy parties and have their fancy friends get the word out. I mean, she just used her fancy friends. So I don't think there's really anything wrong with the way it went about. I mean, I do get the conversation around it, but I more so think her nomination causes a a question about bigger proceedings and procedures rather than, you know, maybe that nomination not being entirely justified to be there. So, you know, they they say they're going to rework social media campaigns. I think the biggest... um, the biggest slap on the wrist will probably go to Francis Fisher, who was saying, well, Kate Blanchett's going to get in and Viola Davis is going to get in and Michelle Yeoh is going to get in. So vote for Andrew Riseborough. But then Viola Davis did not get in and right. Danielle Deadweiler did not get in. So I think that is what caused the bit of controversy. So I appreciate this nomination. Would she have been in my on my personal ballot? Not necessarily, but I do think I appreciate this nomination because I am someone who just this year, in uh, I vote in Critics' Choice, and then all three of us vote in Greater Western New York Film Critics, and just this year I had someone atop my ballot in Best Actor that I had knew had a 0% chance of getting a nomination, but yeah. I wanted to use my ballot to uh, push this nomination, and I knew it wasn't going to turn into anything, but I just appreciate that someone was um, sticking up for this small movie that made $27,000 at the box office. <laughs> so, And then... It, then it, I think it, you know, whether it got her the nomination or it didn't, I think it did a very important thing of getting people to see a very, very small movie because it kind of just kept rising on like the iTunes charts because people were curious about this movie now. Yeah. And people always campaign, but I feel like, from my understanding, the actual like official rules about campaigning say that they have to stick to like screening central campaigning. Like, setting up ways for people to watch this movie rather than saying vote for me and specifically Mm. mentioning other possible nominees by name and you know sticking to 
let's make it easy for people to see this movie rather than anything else. I think I think a screening was held at somebody, well, a party was held at someone's house that was not accompanied with a screening, and I guess that's a, mm. I mean, it's kind of laughable. They have rules because no one follows <laughs> the rules, but um, I do think, I think that is what, you know, they tried to use as maybe this wasn't on the up and up this nomination, but I, I think it's fine. David, any thoughts? I mean, not not really too much. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, not really too much. That I think it's if anything, it should be a story that we should almost be championing. Just like like Matt said, this little indie movie that made twenty seven thousand dollars from four theaters, um, and then got pushed out onto the VOD market, which you know that's that's a story that's becoming common now, but. Uh, that should be the real story. I think it's a major story because it bumped out Viola Davis, who had a lot of the precursor awards. Like she had a Globe, of, uh, I think she had a BAFTA nomination and a SAG, and so uh, she had all the signs showing she was going to get an Oscar nomination, and then winning comes and Andrew Rosberg getting it. And so I think that's more of why people were a little bit up in arms about it, of who she bumped out more than uh, this fun little grassroots campaign. Um, and so I think it, it, they did say that they're going to look into the violations, if there were any, and maybe change the rules. Um, I don't think her nomination was ever at a real risk of getting removed. But um, I think part of it, too, is just Hollywood, like, like you were getting at. It's just they're upset that someone kind of didn't play within their allotted inside baseball rules. And so it's kind of one of those things. So I think, it, I th I think it's a cool story, like Matt was saying. And it's a well-deserved nomination. Um, she might have been my five if, if I had seen it before the, the voting year ended. But So I, I think it's a good nomination. I, I, I wouldn't have complained. And <laughs> she's, is, oh, I was just going to say, and she's been putting in great performances like for years sure. now. So yeah. it's nice to see her recognized. And this movie didn't really come out of nowhere is the thing. Like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't well seen, but I mean, it did premiere at um, South by Southwest, which is no small festival. And um, Richard Roper at the Sun-Times had it on his top 10 list very high up so I mean she's got us you know she's up for a couple independent awards and so this movie really didn't come out of nowhere and I think people are like well no one knows what this movie is and I mean maybe on a gr uh, grand scale that's true but I mean this movie really at the end of the day didn't come out of nowhere so is this uh, uh, maybe an argument as, as Adam was saying of uh, making the other categories deeper as well uh, the, the show is already long enough if we double the number of nominees that we're announcing uh, it, it could take a little bit longer, but there, there is quality beyond just those five that are being nominated. I, I agree with that sentence, and then I also think keep it. Uh, I think keeping it a five makes it so it makes it an interesting race. Everyone in the category has a race because if you look, not to, to make a sports analogy, but the NFL added one more playoff team, mm -hmm. and then those games have consistently been lopsided in the first round because the drop off of the and the NFL six seed to a seven seed is massive, and I think that just adding a lot would not dilute the importance of an Oscar nomination, but I think that it would, um, you know, because once once everybody's special, nobody is. I think, and so so I think keeping it at five makes it uh, that hollowed number. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, as silly as maybe you know some people might look at the Oscars, it's still a competition. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think it's just it's just kind of how the cards fell this year, and I mean, everyone gets upset with you know, their favorites not being nominated. I, I always do. So I, I just think it was, I mean, I think the math worked out that like 200 and some odd people had to vote for her. So, I mean, that's more than just a handful of yeah. fancy friends. And I think when people get upset about snubs, like people, the voters aren't getting in a room saying, okay, I 
let's nominate this person, let's not vote for this person. Like there might be a couple behind closed doors deals, but I don't think there's ever really enough to valid a, uh, validate a conspiracy about voting and snubs and everything. And I, I feel like I would rather uh, the Academy focus on, you know, their efforts that they've been doing the past few years of diversifying their membership. Um, I feel like that will make for uh, more interesting nominations in the future as they, they keep up those efforts rather than just expanding the number of nominations. And I think that leads right into the way that the voting actually works because uh, each of these categories has its own, well, except for the acting, which covers all the acting categories, but each of the other categories has its own group or committee that, that nominates. So the cinematographers are nominating cinematographers, editors are nominating editors. So they are the ones that really know uh, exactly what work was done within those, within those categories. So which, gives credence to the term it's it's an honor just to be nominated because it's your peers that are giving you that nomination whereas the voting goes to the entire membership so that's why we often see sort of the most of something get nominated the the, the most editing or uh the the most special effects as opposed to the best as as known by uh the people within those committees but the best picture for the last couple of years has had a uh, uh, what, what do we call it? That, the preferential ballot. Preferential ballot, ballot. Yeah. thank you. Where it's actually ranked from one to 10. The, the members rank the movies in the nominated category one to 10, and then they get a point system based on that. So that it's really shaken up things. You, even though one film may have the most number one votes, it may not win best picture because another film has so many more high votes than it does. And that's why we see so many people because you know a lot of I feel like the thing you hear the most is like, well, how can someone win best director in the movie, not win best picture? But mm -hmm. they're voted on different systems. Because I mean, when Jane Campion won best director last year, it's because she got the most votes to win best director last year. Right. And Power of the Dog didn't go through the complicated math of winning best picture yeah. <laughs> because you know two votes can turn into one, three votes can turn into two. So it's just like you said, it's just a rank system. So that's why we get like a, that's why we get the split. And based on my research in my Inside Oscar book, I knew that for most of the years, it was like in every seven or every nine year pattern where the director and, and picture would be separated, but most of the time, it was director and picture were, were right side by side winning the same year. Yeah, I, I think it makes it interesting when the directors don't line up with uh, the pictures. Like we've had that a lot in recent years because uh, 2012, Ben Affleck was snubbed for directing nomination for Argo. Argo wins Best Picture. Jane Campion won for Power of the Dog. Coda wins last year. Um, Bong won for Parasite, and then Parasite ended up winning Best Picture. You just know when a movie is undeniable that they right. give them both like that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's possibly what we're looking into this year. Um, so more and more in recent years, it has split because of I think the voting patterns. Because um, people, you know, they might want to like uh, who won Inuichi uh, won for Revenant, and then Revenant loses Best Picture to Spotlight. Um, so I think people just like having different taste and maybe the best directed film isn't necessarily like the best movie or the Oscar best movie. Um, I do think that the, the preferential ballot has made things interesting, if nothing else. It's still easy enough to predict the one or two, but it definitely keeps things fresh. Adam, any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree. <laughs> like, I don't have a whole lot of thoughts about, yeah, that. You're a very agreeable fellow. Yeah, in general. <laughs> like I said, especially when it comes to the Oscars. Like, I I just want to see good movies get nominated. Yeah. Like, so I don't get, you know, picky about 
the politics and the the mechanizations of it, I guess. You don't take it personally when they don't know. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're also a king of segues as we'll start talking about uh, this year's ceremony and talk about some of our favorite nominations that that came through. Um, I feel like one of my favorites was uh, Stephanie Hsu for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Uh, only because I feel like in the initial sort of when it seemed unexpectedly that this movie was actually getting awards attention. Uh, I feel like at the beginning she was kind of getting lost in the shuffle. Um, and she's she's fantastic in the movie. And she's um, a lot of ways sort of the 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 heart and soul of the movie. And so I, I was hoping she would be recognized. And so, so I feel like one of the initial, like the, the pre-Oscar awards, she got overlooked. Um, and so I was happy to see her show up because she's she's fantastic. So that that made me really happy. It was uh, I recognized her. It, it took me a while. I was watching the film at the little uh, to recognize her, but she was from uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which uh, my wife and I had caught up with. So it was wonderful making that connection. And yeah, she's so good uh, in the film as well. And I, I actually just rewatched Everything Everywhere. Um, and I, I only like that movie. I'm not sure how many of you guys have seen it, but it's it's one of the most acclaimed films of last year, certainly, if not in recent years. And I, I only think it's like good. And so it's <laughs> it's a it's a, a damnation of the film. But um I, I think she's great. I from I rewatched it yesterday and so I was able to know what I was looking out for. Um and she's I think she's really great. I think she's probably besides Michelle Yeoh, she's probably my favorite performance in that film. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good performances, as, as indicated by the nominations that came out. But as long as you're talking, Dave, why don't you tell us about some of your favorite noms? Um, I love that Babylon got a Best Score nomination. Babylon had a very interesting time of release, um, very polarized when it came out. It has a 55 in Rotten Tomatoes, and some of those are 10 off 10s, some of those are 1 off 10s. Um, so it was always interesting, interesting what it was going to get. Um, it ended up getting three nominations, I think, uh, Costume Production and Score. Um, it's by the uh, Justin Herwitz, who did the La La Land score. He did First Man. He did Chazelle's Whiplash. And so he's consistently putting out really good scores. I think he's, he's John Williams in a way of no matter what the quality of you think of Chazelle's films, the music's going to be good. Um, so I'm really glad that got in. Um, Hong Chow for The Whale, who plays Brendan uh, Fraser's caretaker. Um, she was snubbed a couple of years back for uh, downsizing for Alexander Payne's film. And she's been really good. She was in a good movie two years ago called Driveways. Um, and so I think that this is not a long time coming because um, she's not a because she's not a, uh, you know, a household name for 30 some odd years. But I think uh, it's good to see her get in. Um, and I hopefully hope she gets more more meaty roles moving forward. And I will, you know, second any nomination that Babylon gets. I think we know <laughs> from our, our communication that I'm a, a big fan of that film. Uh, but it could have gotten more. It should. I'm not taking more. it personally, <laughs> it, but it's fine. It will. I think Babylon will age well. It'll be one of those movies that people will look at in 10 plus years when they're going over Chazelle's filmography, and I think that that'll be one that ages a little more gracefully. Because mm. I understand why no one might like that movie. It's very long. It's very gratuitous. It's very obvious in a lot of points about what it's trying to say about Hollywood. But um, I, I I love that film. It was in my top 10. But yeah. I'm glad he got at least score because it deserves to win that. Matt, any favorite nominations? My one of the ones I was really excited about was a movie that uh, 
I think played here in December, January, mm-hmm. and I was very excited to see EO get Best International. Yeah, um, it won't win, but um, I was that movie. I kind of put on in the midst of screener season. I was like, okay, an hour and a half movie from the perspective of a donkey, and it was thrilling. Like it, it, it was the biggest surprise I had last year of a movie I kind of had no real expectation for, and I bet it played really well on the big screen. But because um, it's just it's it's gorgeous and it's mm-hmm. gritty and it's dark. And, um, so I was very excited about that and that, and to see, um, tar get nominated in editing and cinematography was very exciting for me. Cause I think that movie's just miraculously made. Yeah. And we, we did, it's, I, we did it. Ugh. We, we screened not only EO, but we also screened after sun in January. So it's, it's always good to see, uh, films that we've screened here, uh, do well at the Oscars, but, especially in the documentary and international film categories, we talk about uh, putting money behind the nominations. Those are categories where it's really, really specifically, if you've got a lot of money behind you, you are more likely to get a nomination. Uh, HBO and Apple and all these companies tend to have uh, films like Navalny is another documentary nominated uh, from HBO for Best Feature Documentary. So I think that's really where, if, if the... Oscars were going to change something specifically, I would love to have them address that a little bit more. Yeah. I, I think, um, uh, this is stealing your talking point, but the documentary branch specifically doesn't love to give repeat wins. So once you've won once as a documentary, they pretty much will, like who did the Mr. Rogers documentary a couple of years ago? Was that Brett Morgan who's got Moon Age Daydream so, yeah. this year, which so, was not nominated because he won for... 20 feet from stardom, didn't he do that one? Yeah. And so, and then once you make a short film, typically that's, you know, you're jumping off point in your career, so you move on to a feature. So you're typically not getting too many short films um, nominations. And so um, it is interesting to see, because Netflix seemingly is always in the, the documentary game. They always have their hat in the ring, and Netflix loves to burn money. And so um, they don't, they need to focus on making, you know, more good projects and less just more projects. But, um, yeah, so I, th- I think that'd be interesting to see what sort of projects. I think the diversity of the kinds of shorts and documentaries and international we've gotten are really good. Like you said, EO is a very weird movie, um, but it's it's really cool. That a weird movie about a donkey can get an Oscar <laughs> nomination. So, yeah, so I think it's, it keeps things fresh. And EO did play amazing on the big screen. I, I did. did see it here, and that had some of the best crowd reactions. I feel like <laughs> so I heard jealous. all year, especially one moment. The, the gasps was amazing yeah. to be in a theater to, to hear that reaction. The cinema experience, no matter where you are, is, is important. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go down the, the ballot a little bit more and just say that the last time that I watched Top Gun Maverick, uh, I thought to myself, wow, this editing is incredible. And I made sure to go back to the nominations and saw that it was nominated for editing, which, uh, I mean, the way that they put that, that together in terms of building the excitement was really, really fantastic. But won't spend more time on that. Uh, let's talk about uh, some of the snubs. The, 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 the most heartbreaking one was if you saw um, Till, because mm-hmm. Danielle Denweiler is just this performance as Emma Till's mother. And, I, and, and you know... Uh, in the aftermath of the nominations, people like to think, well, why didn't this get nominated? It's very fair that a lot of people didn't want to watch Till. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's just, she, there's a scene when she takes the stand during a court case, and it's a very well done movie, and where she takes a court case that the director holds it, holds the camera on her, and 
she's just you're like oh she didn't like win an oscar for this and then she didn't even get nominated that was the yeah. biggest one and when you're watching the nominations it's like it takes you a minute when you're going through them to be like who wait, who's not there who's not there so who's not there? who's there who, who's not there because of andrea riseborough yeah. and so then it, yeah that was that was a big one for a snub adam uh, I think the one I was most disappointed by was uh, Decision to Leave, not getting an international feature, uh, a movie that I loved, uh, Park Chan-wook's uh, mystery romance that I feel like up until the nominations come out was was everyone was expecting to be like a front runner and then to see that not show up uh, was was personally very disappointing for me. Well, I mean, that category specifically, there's, I mean, Anything outside of North America, you're, you're shoving all into one category with five nominations, half the nominations of Best Picture. There's so much great international cinema that's coming out. We've got a couple more Rochester premieres coming up here at the Dryden uh, that are still 2022 films, but it's, uh, there's a lot out there that it could be recognized, and it's just having that money behind it that really helps it get noticed. So, but Decision to Leave had was, that was Neon, right? Uh, no, oh, no, that was, it was uh, movie. movie, right. Yeah. Uh, so they, I, I guess they're smaller right now, uh, but they're getting into theatrical distribution. So hopefully in the future they can get more films like that out there. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I feel like they were doing a good job of getting it seen. And I feel like, I, at least in my you know social feeds, was seeing uh, a lot of reactions and seeing them do screenings. And so hopefully they'll keep that up because they're, yeah, they're putting out some really interesting movies. Um, I'll definitely double down on the the Danielle Till or uh, Danielle Devweiler for Till. Um, when I when I saw that, I had seen it um, the day after Tar, so I had seen Kate Blanchett, who's a possible you know front runner for Best Actress, um, and I'd seen Danielle Devweiler, and I instantly Danielle Devweiler is my number one for the rest of the year. I think she's gut wrenching in that film. I think that she's fantastic. Um, she's very strong. So I think. Like, like Matt said, I think part of it was that voters and audiences maybe didn't want to go out and see a movie about Emmett Till. But as the years go on, I think, and more people maybe discover the film, I think this will kind of be looked on. Not favorably that she didn't get an Oscar nomination. Um, and just for the sake of diversity then, um, Top Gun and the Batman, both for cinematography, I think those are both two of the, the better shot films of the year. And for them not to get in, Top Gun's more surprising because it won the BAFTA for cinematography. But um, the Batman, then the Batman score, not getting in, it's just, it's a good score, and I think a lot of people like it. And then Babylon editing, it's a lot of editing, kind of like everything ever all at once. But, but uh, so it's a long movie, which I'm sure wasn't great, but um, I think it's by the guy who edited Whiplash, and Whiplash is one of the best edited films of all time. So, yeah. so, so I, those technical ones. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down the the, the categories again, and uh, actually, when I saw Women Talking uh, in the theater, and I walked out, I was like, well, obviously, that score was nominated for best uh, for for an Oscar, and I walked out, and it wasn't. That was the score that you hopefully heard when you were uh, coming in and sitting down. I had them cue it up just so you get a sense of it, but it was so integral to that film and and the the feel of it that uh, I thought was um, fantastic, and I wish that would have gotten nominated, but. There's a lot of good music out there as well. So, I was just going to also toss out, uh, just in general, I feel like it was disappointing um, that a lot of, I feel like several of the films that were expected to get nominations that didn't um, happened to be, however things shook out, from black female filmmakers. And I feel like with Till, 
Um, the Woman King, Gina Prince Bythewood, I thought people were expecting that to get a lot of attention and for it to get nothing. Um, and even inter international, St. Omer, which I know just screened here last night, people were kind of expecting that to be in the race too from Alice Diop and that also to not show up. So I feel like that pattern is disappointing and kind of distressing. Um, and hopefully, as I said before, as they sort of, the Academy diversifies their, their membership things like that won't be so egregious and blatant year after year. So hopefully that doesn't continue. And I hope, I'm sure the Academy is listening to this conversation right now. Yeah, I'm sure. And they are taking this to heart. Uh, so let's go from snubs to some of the, uh, the films we'd like to highlight. We'd like to talk about uh, some of the uh, films that are nominated. Um, and this is probably going to be the heated part of the, uh, the panel as well. Uh, Matt, why don't you start us out? Well, everyone agrees Tar's the best movie of the year, so. Um, when I, so my favorite movie of the year was Tar, and it was, it was, I don't even think Tar was over, and I, and I was like, no, this is the best movie of the year, and I kind of felt like it was the, it, I saw it, it came out in October, so I feel like when I had, when, when it was time to see Tar, I was, I was very hopeful, because I hadn't really seen that movie that kind of knocked me out the, the, at that point in 2022 yet. And Todd Field is a director I've, I really like. I mean, this is only his third movie since 2001 when he did In the Bedroom, which is phenomenal. And then Little Children in 2006, which is excellent. And then he came back with, with Tar, which it's kind of, you know, uh, probably not the best at selling Tar because I'm like, it's this two hour and 40 minute cold exploration of a genius composer and her you know professional and personal downfall but it is riveting every minute of it is riveting i mean there's a um there's a cut and this is why i love that it got best editing there's a cut about an hour into the movie that i think i told you because i you and i screened it together i think that i told you that was like on the roof of the little when uh, it's just this it's startled me more than anything else yeah. this year because it's just so, and it's just so well made and what I really like about this movie is that you're you kind of forget that you're watching a movie and I think that's really a a, a testament to uh, Fields's work because you know he'll have the camera back here while Blanchett's talking to someone up here and you kind of just feel like you're in the room with them and I, you just feel like you're not watching this movie and I, I just found it to be so I mean it, it's it's a it's a long movie it's a complicated movie it's it's morally gray and ambiguous and I mean there's been so many great articles there's one I think in Slate about it being like this supernatural ghost story like mm -hmm. metaphorically I guess and um, it, it, it's just a, a great movie to I mean, it's it's dense, and it's just, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that excites me when I go to the movies. It's just something that you could just pick apart. and I mean, I, and I just think it's just really well-made, too, like just exceptionally made. So I am rooting for Tar the most next Sunday. <laughs> and I think that I feel like people were discouraged from seeing it because it was so politicized, and which I think completely misses the point uh, of the film itself. It really is, uh, along with uh, Babylon, talking about the art and the artist and how they are not the same, and uh, whether or not you can create great things while still being somewhat of a bad person, yeah. to, be, to, to use familiar language, um, uh, at the while you're creating it, so. Well, it, it kind of reductively got labeled the, the cancel culture movie. Right. 
And so I agree with you on that. It's much more complicated than that. Adam? Uh, I also love Tar. Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed how it raised some interesting discussions that are, you know, relevant to the culture going on right now. Um, and I feel like, yeah, the entire nature of, you know, separating art from artist is always an interesting, uh, frustrating discussion. Um, and I feel like it, it did such a good job of kind of presenting things and showing both sides and sort of leaving it open to the audience to, to decide how they felt about it and not, you know, hitting you overhead and saying like, this is how we're, we're, how you should be feeling about this and let it sort of letting you decide how you felt about it on your own, which, yeah, I always appreciate. Um, I'm just like everything everywhere. I, I thought Tar was good. I think it's, it's a solid film. I think Kate Blanchett's great in it. Um, I, from what I remember about it, because um, I saw it back in October myself and it didn't stick with me as much as, as much as these guys, but um, I think it is a bit, I think the, it's removedness that, some people see as the plus. I think I didn't go in fully expecting because I've never seen I had never seen one of Todd Field's films. So I do have to rewatch Tar because it takes a while to be like, oh, this is this film's not going to tell you this person's a bad guy, this person's a good guy. Some of the things are obvious, and so in hindsight you can appreciate that. But in the moment when you're kind of like not quite whiplashed by a film, but you go in expecting one thing, it's another. Not to the fault of the film, but sometimes if the film is made to make you feel cold and you don't go in knowing that, you're suddenly like, well, why why am I not liking this main character I just spent two and a half hours with? And so, um, and I, th I think the, I, I take a little bit of issues with the, end, the ending, which obviously I can't get into why, but... Um, so, I mean, I, it's very interesting because there was a, uh, the secret, every year there's secret Oscar ballots where voters will, you know, they'll leak to Variety, Hollywood Reporter, all these people about who they voted for. And um, there was one for the Los Angeles Times just put out, and three out of the three people said they're voting fields for best director. And so that's interesting because he's last or fourth in most people's ballots. So for people to be championing tar already with the ballots is interesting. So... I think Tar could be the very, very, very surprised dark horse. Um, it could win four Oscars. It could win none. So I think Tar is the real interesting character for, for this season. Adam, you want to take the next title? Uh, sure. Uh, one of my favorite films of the year was The Fablemans. Um, and I feel like on its face, it's kind of like the expected, you know, Oscar-nominated film, but I could easily see it not getting anything. Like when the Oscars actually roll around, I could easily see it coming away with with nothing and going home empty-handed. Uh, but it's uh, Steven Spielberg's film from this year, um, and I don't think I'm saying anything new that Steven Spielberg knows how to make a movie and how to make an entertaining movie. Um, and he's always drawn on aspects of his life throughout his films. Like, I mean, Famously, uh, his parents' divorce has centered in a lot of his films from E.T. to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, but this is the first time he's made something so directly autobiographical. It focuses on, on his childhood, a lightly, lightly fictionalized version of his, his life from roughly age 7 to 18. Um, and here, sort of the stand-in for Spielberg is uh, Sammy Fableman, played by Gabriel LaBelle. Um, and the narrative is just about how he 
fell in love with making movies um, and concurrently how it in a way led to his discovery of uh, sort of a family secret that uh, impacted um, his own life and his relationship with his parents and his parents' relationship with one another. Um, and I think people kind of wrote off the Fablemans as indulgent, sort of just Spielberg making a movie uh, about himself and about, you know, this is how I became the great artist I am today. Right. But I feel like there's so much more going on in that movie um, about, you know, art and how we use art to process um, the things in our lives um, that, you know, we otherwise wouldn't be able to grapple with. And also, I think the the cost of dedicating your life to something and the nature of that, meaning that some other aspects of your life um, are not going to be uh, as much of a priority for better and for worse. Um, and in this case, you know, his family. And <clears throat> excuse me, I think it's. Uh, a surprisingly honest portrait of Spielberg. Like I don't think it's he comes away like uh, uh, it's not a, a, it's not a glowing portrait. There's a lot of stuff in there that I think is is kind of dark. Um, and my partner Matt and I, <clears throat> the the scene we often talk about like that stuck with both of us is uh, there's a scene late in the movie where the, his parents sit the the family down and announce their divorce. Um, and it's the scene where, you know, obviously it's a very traumatic moment and heightened emotions and his sisters are screaming and crying. And there's this moment where it just cuts to him imagining how he would shoot this if he were making a movie. And I think that says so much, uh, again, for better and for worse, about where his priorities lie and how he thinks and what sort of it's done to him mentally and how he processes things. Um, and so I just I I love that movie so much, and I think it's 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 so interesting and it's so personal, and it's just an entertaining movie to watch. Like for me, I thought the the performances across the board were pretty great. Um, yeah, I, I loved that movie, and I I hope people see it and give it a chance and don't sort of just go, eh, that's, that's <laughs> another movie, Hollywood about Hollywood and making movies are wonderful, but because I think there's a lot more to take away from it. Agree. Yeah, Matt. <laughs> I'm ready. I, I know your feelings. Um, yeah, I go from talking about how Tar two and a half hours of slow downfall of somebody is thrilling, and then two and a half hours of the Fablemans, I lost my patience with it pretty quickly. <laughs> so I am one of those people that I just kind of like, you know, pretty quickly into the movie. I was like, Steven Spielberg is great. I know. <laughs> and then I uh, it, movie lost me kind of early, and it didn't really win me back. So I'm a little cold on Fablemans, honestly. But your passion for it is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I won't hold it against you, I promise. I'm, I'm only a, a slightly more warm cup of tea on this one. Um, I, I think if the Fable, I think the Fablemans is a good movie that if it was by and about any other director, we wouldn't really care about it. Hmm. I think that um, Michelle Williams, who plays uh, not Steven Spielberg's mom, uh, she's up for an Oscar in Best Lead category. Um, there's a very strong argument to be made she should be in supporting. There's also a very even arguably stronger case that it's not a great performance. Um, and that's a very interesting nomination. I'm not sure if, I, I know you said across the board, so I'd be interested in 
and hearing the Michelle Williams opinion. But I think Paul Dano as the dad is great, and he got snubbed for an Oscar. Um, I think uh, the young boy who plays, the young man who plays young Steven Spielberg is great. Uh, Seth Rogen is either even decent in a uh, supporting dramatic role, and I think we've seen with the likes of Steve Jobs, um, Seth Rogen can act when he wants to, just like Adam Adam Sandler and all these comedians. The issue is like how often they want to sit down with a Spielberg or a, a Fincher or one of these guys and make a serious movie. But um, Fableman's, I think, is a solid little 50s, 60s period piece that, again, it didn't have to be two and a half hours. It's one of those movies, but... <laughs> it's it'd be, I, Tony Kushner wrote the script with Steven Spielberg and he's been nominated before for various other films uh, Munich is one of his nominations and so if the Academy gives it anything I hope it gives Spielberg for his passion project and then Kushner's first ever Oscar win for the script it might win director Feynman's another one I think it could win because it winning with six it could win zero and I think it's up for ten nine something like that it's out, it has a lot of nominations, so it'd be interesting to see how Fabians does. But it's I think it's fine. <laughs> well, you guys are bookended by people that love this film, so <laughs> we're not going to let you leave until you admit that you love it. Um, I, I think that it's especially watching it again uh, with my wife, it was a very full movie. It, it made you feel full inside, and it's it's not just that one scene about uh, creating art, but it's uh, several of the scenes when he's uh, making the film with his scout troop and he's you know directing an actor for the first time and he's mining not only his own passion and feelings but but the actor's uh, passions and feelings as well and that the 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 great sequence that I think everybody talks about is actually that discovery in the editing yeah. of uh, what the secret is uh, within the family <clears throat> and it's like every aspect of filmmaking is reflected in his life story and sure we can go back and we can I mean, this is what he's allowed to do is go back and see the seeds of everything that he has become within his own life. But, I mean, we can all do that. It's just not as uh, Hollywood-centric uh, as that one film is. I, I think someone said it's the Fableman's is essentially a $40 million therapy session for Steven Spielberg. And so... <laughs> I think Spielberg himself said that. There, there you go, then. So, um, yeah, I... I Again, I think it's fine. I think Spielberg has made... It's a nice movie. It's a nice it's film. A nice movie. <laughs> I think Spielberg's not that he's made bad movies, but some of his worst films in recent years, which have been, to me... Um, I didn't love um, the Ready Player One. I think the West Side Story's fine. And so we're a long shot... I know. We're a long <laughs> shot from the the Raiders, Schindler's List Spielberg. And so I think Fableman's is one of his better films in recent years for whatever that's worth to, to people. So I know my, my parents really liked it. Um, they, they love the, the homey family 50s, 60s era stuff. So, so I, you know, if, if the, the 50 plus crowd liked it, I guess that's Spielberg's main ambition. So. But you don't like the 50s and 60s. You love the 80s. Apparently. And you wrote in your email you wanted to run Top Gun Academy. You so want to run them. Top Gun Academy. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure everyone in the world saw Top Gun. Um, everyone except for one person at this panel liked Top Gun. <laughs> and so um, I think I think Top so Top Gun Maverick is the sequel to the 86 movie with Tom Cruise. Um, it was a long time in the making. It was shot and edited and ready to come out before the pandemic. Um, 
Paramount wanted to put it on streamer or maybe sell it, and Tom Cruise pretty much held them ransom and said, this is going to theaters. Like, I will walk if you try and put this on streaming. And he's very important to them. He has the Mission Impossible series with Paramount. And so he was very, very crucial in keeping it as a theater play. And that worked out well. Um, I just want to make sure I get my stats right here. So uh, Top Gun Maverick opened up to $126 million, uh, this past year over Memorial Day, 160 over the four-day weekend. It then only dropped 29%, which was the second, biggest, second smallest drop for any film to ever open over 100% or over $100 million. Uh, the real fun fact, I'm a, I'm a box office nerd, and the real fun fact is that it stayed in the top five of the box office for its first 10 weeks of release and the top 10 for 21 weeks. Uh, for context, Avengers Endgame, which at one point was the biggest film of all time, that stayed in the top uh, five for just six weeks and in the top 10 for eight weeks. And so Top Gun had this huge cultural impact and this huge saving of cinemas and it's just this big event that we haven't really had in a while. And we haven't had a non-Marvel blockbuster seemingly in forever. And so for this sequel to this 25-year-old movie that's coming out uh, and it only cost $170 million for it to become the number 11 highest grossing film ever. And then get a slew of Oscar nominations. You got Tom Cruise, his uh, first one since Magnolia in 99. Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, who's a producer, and he's known for the... Uh, Bad Boy franchise, Armageddon, these big disaster movies. So for him to be an Oscar nominee is kind of cool. And then just um, it ended up getting a script nomination, which was surprising. But then it got you know some very interesting character. It got uh, Justin Marks, who wrote The Jungle Book. It got uh, Peter Craig, who's Sally Field's son, and he wrote The Batman. He got in. And then Ewan uh, Kruger, who wrote all the Transformers sequels, which is as good as, of course, Top Gun. And so he got he got an Oscar nomination. So Top Gun kind of brought, I think, people together in a an era of both movies and the world where there's a lot of tribalism, a lot of back and forth, where it's just like this, you know, this simple, straightforward action movie with a bunch of practical effects and a, you know, a pretty straightforward narrative. And so, so it was really good. It was my number two of the year. I think Top Gun did everything it had to do and more. Um, and I, I think Tom Cruise, I'm, I'm glad he got his producing nomination because I think he deserved to get something of that if it wasn't going to be actor, which I, it's not an Academy Award performance, but he's, he's good in the movie. <laughs> All right, who is the dissenter? I think it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you know, they're, you know they're, they're learning about flying, then they're flying, they're learning about flying. It's just kind of another one. It just kind of got a little repetitive in my taste, but I, I think it's, I think if it wins Best Picture, which is not out of the realm of possibility, to be honest with you, um, if it does win Best Picture, then I think that kind of harkens back to when blockbusters used to get nominated and win Best Picture. So I'm not mad at Top Gun. I just I don't I don't share the enthusiasm, and I think it only got an adapted screenplay nomination. That's more right. about the category. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's more about the category than the <laughs> screenplay of Top Gun because it was Slim Pickens in that category. Adam. Uh, I, I was a fan of Top Gun Maverick. Uh, in terms of you know big blockbuster Hollywood filmmaking, I feel like that's one of the best of that type of movie we've gotten in a while. Um, in terms of you know entertaining special effects and you know action, but also enough story and enough moments for you know the performers to actually act and have characters to play. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's nothing that you know it. It was a spectacle that everyone wanted to see on the big screen. Like mm -hmm. seeing that it, 
in an IMAX theater at a sold out crowd. Like that, that was like one of the highlights of just in terms of a movie going experience that I had this past year. Um, so yeah, I, I don't hold anything against it and I totally am, am fine with it getting, you know, Oscar attention and a best picture nomination. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I wouldn't say I don't hold anything against it in, in terms of, um, Comparing it to something really original like Tar, uh, it does rip off like several other movies, but it sure. rips off great movies. And the, the opening is straight out of the opening of the right stuff. So, and and the ending is is completely a redo of the original Star Wars, which is you know fantastic. Those are great films and and crowd pleasing films, but just in terms of comparison to some of the other films that I think uh, present a more original vision. Uh, it's somewhat lacking there, but it, absolutely, as I said, the, the filmmaking uh, was very, very sharp and very effective for what it did. And you know, as as much as uh, Spielberg wants to thank uh, Tom Cruise for saving cinema, uh, I, I think having these kinds of films that want to get a large number of people out to the theater is, is great. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's Top Gun Maverick is essentially a remake of the first Top Gun, just like a lot of these legacy sequels are that come out 15, 20 years later, and they bring back one original cast member, and they have a bunch of hot, new, attractive uh, cast members. And so I think it's one of the better ones we've gotten because it doesn't feel forced. And it's one of the ones that not only does it not feel forced and it's a good movie, it's almost universally accepted as better than... 86 is Top Gun. Which I was going to say for me, I, I think it's that. a better movie. Yeah. yeah, I don't think many people accuse 1986 Top Gun of being like a great, great movie. I think it's the meme, like the whole meme of the volleyball scene, and like it's a very, it was a moment within itself, and it lasted in the top ten back in 86 forever. So, so I, th I think uh, Top Gun Maverick is one of those movies. It's a blockbuster built to last because it's a lot of practical effects and practical yep. jets and. So it's not going to, in 10 years, we're not going to look at it and be like, oh, that, that didn't age well. Which happens with a lot of the Marvel movies. Not to keep knocking out Marvel. But. So one of the films I wanted to bring up, and my, my only Best Picture nominee I'll talk about, is The Banshees of Inna Sharon, which um, I think I see in a different way than a lot of regular moviegoers, because I see that as an incredible act of empathy. Uh, when I when I started watching the film, I wasn't necessarily following the protagonist. I wasn't identifying with Colin Farrell so much as I was identifying with Brendan Gleeson. I was like, yeah, I can see that happen. Now, th for background, this is a, a story about a, a small Irish island where two people who have been friends for a long time, one of them decides that he's not going to be friends with the other guy because he's dull. And he, he doesn't want to waste time necessarily uh, with this dull person anymore, so he decides to... Uh, say, this friendship is over, and if you keep on bugging me, I'm going to start cutting my fingers off. Uh, at which point, I was like, yes, I can, I can, I've gotten to that point with people <laughs> where... May he cast the first stones, who hasn't <laughs> threatened to cut off a boundage. <laughs> I, I, I've been at that point with people, I was like, yeah, I, I need to send a signal that, you know, this is not working for me. And I think we've all been at that point, but what... Uh, uh, the Martin McDonough, the writer and director of the film, does is he puts the film from Farrell's point of view. So the way I was reading it was that McDonough was seeing himself as Gleason as well, but writing it from the point of view of Farrell, so we can get a, to, as as an act of apologizing to those people that he may have done that with. You know, saying yes, this is uh, being nice is not necessarily a bad thing, and being dull is not necessarily a bad thing, and 
to put myself in the shoes of that character, I can build a, a film around that person and sort of come back at myself about the way that I have acted in the past and uh, give, give those people that I may have shunned uh, a movie for themselves. Your thoughts? I love this movie, so <laughs> um, I I've liked all Martin McDonough's movies, and I think this is just uh, another great original story that has all his flourishes and touches, and you know it's 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 sad, it's funny, it's melancholy, it's um, dark, it's twisted, and I think it is the best thing of what he does. I really liked his last one that was in the awards race, Three Billboards. Um, which kind of became the controversial Oscar nominee of that year. There's always one. And, um, yeah, I, I really like this. I mean, this is just under, just right under tar for me this year. So this is, this is a great one. Yeah, it's also up there for among my favorites. And I'm a fan of any movie that can walk that line of being simultaneously, you know, absolutely hilarious and completely devastating, <laughs> which I feel like that movie was. And I was really excited that all four of the, the main uh, performers, main characters of the film, ended up getting nominations. Because I think, again, that's a, an excellent ensemble. Uh, Colin Farrell got uh, actor Brendan Gleeson and Barry Keegan uh, ended up in supporting. And, and Carrie Condon um, also ended up in supporting actors. And I think all four of them deliver you know amazing performances. And it's just it's so entertaining just to watch those characters sort of bounce off each other. And the dialogue in that movie is incredible in that way that feels uh, real um, and entertaining and, and you know, hilarious and heartbreaking and uh, not, you know, written in a way that, you know, it, you know it's not ad-libbed. Like, somebody's actually writing right. that dialogue. Um, yeah, I, lo I loved Banshees. Especially that dialogue in the pub. Yes. They're going back and forth so quickly. Um, that, David, I want to ask you... Uh, because uh, Adam mentioned all four acting nominations, there's four nominations mm -hmm. for Everything Everywhere All at Once as well. Has that ever happened before the two films got four acting nominations? I would assume so. I was, yeah, I was trying to think because, I mean, there's plenty of movies like, um, you know, Fighter, Silver Lines Playbook in, in different years that got their primary cast two all nominated. Two years. in the same time. I That one I've been, I thought that my, about myself and I could not, I couldn't think of a year that that happened i mean that was that's pretty wild that well you know so many of the acting categories are compiled of uh two movies <laughs> yeah of the 20 nominations eight are taken up by two movies yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean I, just to you my, my two cents on banshees i i would concur with everything said i think carrie condon was my number one supporting actress of the year and she now it, she seemed to be left for dead as we entered award season ish it seemed like it was angela bassett's train and now it might be Angela Bassett. It might be Jamie Lee Curtis, even. Um, Carrie Connor won the BAFTA. So supporting actress is the one, I think, more than anything. We have zero, Well, we have zero clue for almost all the categories this year. <laughs> but um, the, the dialogue, I think, is very, it's very, very, um, it's a feel-bad treat is the, uh, the ism that's used about uh, McDonough a lot. And I, I love all of his films as well. Um, Banshees was one of my top of last year. Um, and I get why people might not like it. Like it, it's mean, and you have to have the subtitles on because it's their Irish accents are th so thick. Um, it's like the the joke I made after I saw it first was it's the first English film to ever require subtitles, <laughs> and so um, so I, I, I watch much Ken Loach. No, and so <laughs> um, so I, I think Banshees is is 
again, it's it's a very well made movie and it's a very particular film and it's it's one of those films that, like he said, it's very funny. It's also very mean. It's also very like heartbreaking and it's it's so it's every it's human emotion and that's why I think I think Banshees feels real as much as it does. It's like a very specific slice of this world that McDonough created over in Ireland. And I feel like it fits in like it's always interesting each year the sort of themes that emerge that show up in in several movies and I feel like one of them this year was about the need for kindness mm-hmm. and I feel like that this a Banshees falls into that obviously everything everywhere yeah. um, I would say EO even living um, I, I think yeah I thought it was interesting that yeah it, Fablemans even as fa- the, yeah Fablemans um, which. You know, as a message, I can also get on board with some of that also probably <laughs> factored into my liking it so much. So Matt, you've got our next one? Yeah, everything, everywhere, all at once. I mean, this is your, all signs say that this is the front runner for Best Picture. I mean, it's a movie that people just have loved since last March. It premiered at South by Southwest, and it was just this quirky sci-fi comedy that, some that is just really it's been such a word of mouth hit i mean it made over 100 million dollars at the global box office and i think the most surprise going into the oscar nominations you know you follow the race it's you knew this movie was well loved but it got 11 nominations for this tiny little movie and you know it got a lot of expected nominations but then it got things like costume which i thought was very inspired for that movie and um uh, song and score and so I mean this is like you like you know when we were talking about the how the voting works I mean this just kind of signifies that the entire academy really liked this movie because each branch pretty much gave it a nomination okay. um, it is it is a movie that I love in large large chunks I think as a whole it kind of it's another one that kind of gets a little repetitive in the last 45 minutes but it's just, it's, I mean, the cast is so good, and it's just, it, it's, it's, go, if it wins Best Picture, it's going to be a, f- a fun Best Picture, and then we could stop kind of having the conversation of like, well, they only, you know, Oscar movies, what's an Oscar movie? Because everything, everywhere, all at once is not really an Oscar movie, and now it's yeah. going into the, it's going in with 11 nominations. Um, I think, even if I don't love it nearly as much as everyone I've spoken to about it, I think that it will make such a good Best Picture winner. And I always appreciate a good word-of-mouth hit. Uh, Adam, you, Matt, and I saw this all at the same time. Uh, yes. Sneak preview at the Little. Uh, yeah, and that's another one that, you know, it it was apparent at that screening just <laughs> what that movie what was, go, was going to become just based on the reaction of the crowd and talking to people after. Like, people love that movie, and I think with good reason. And... I love that, you know, if you had asked me back when it came out, if this movie um, about the multiverse with martial arts and hot dog fingers and googly eyes was going to be the front runner for best picture eventually, I would have said you were nuts. And I love that for it. And I think what what I love most about the movie in the end is the way it is sort of... uh, a tribute to Michelle Yeoh and Mm. the way it gave her a chance, you know, she talked about it in interviews herself uh, for the first time, a chance to show off everything that she is capable of doing and hadn't really gotten the chance up until then. And she, you know, she hits hits it out of the park. It's such a a wonderful performance that allows her to, you know, show the entire breadth of her talents. 
Uh, and I, I think that's, yeah, what I, what I love the most about that movie. Dan? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, like Matt, where I, I think it, I think the movie's two hours, 20 minutes, and it, it doesn't have that much content. Um, and I think it kind of, by the end, kind of collapses in on the weight of itself because it's a lot. But um, it's an inspired direct, I mean, the direction's inspired, the performances are inspired, it's a lot of editing, um, and it's a very different kind of Best Picture nominee. And not even nominee, much less front runner, much less winner. And so I don't know if it signals like a change and changing of the guards for the Academy, but I do think it will kind of like, like Matt said, it will kind of break the the threshold of like, well, it's not an Academy Award nominee, it's not an Academy movie. And so, because it's a movie, it's like got giant evil bagel black holes and it's got <laughs> it's got kung fu sequences it's it's got a bunch of actors who some of them have been underlooked for um like Kiwi Kwan um Kwan for uh big with uh Indiana Jones and the Goonies and you know then he pretty much disappears for 20 years and comes back and he's on the Oscar trail and so so it's a cool we have cool stories besides just the film itself and that's what I think more than anything that's what's interesting about everything everywhere well, what I love about Everything Everywhere All at Once is, it, and I don't necessarily consider it the best film of the year, but it's so rewatchable. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's in parts or in whole, there's so many great sequences within the film. And I'm not going to drop in The Godfather for two hours and 50 minutes every time, but it's easier to drop in Everything Everywhere All at Once to, to rewatch it and pick it up you know, where you left off. And <clears throat> I think what I appreciate most about it is that it brought a sense of absurdity to mainstream cinema. Uh, the idea that, you know, especially with everything that's been going on in the last few years, just the, the fact that so many weird and explosively big things have been happening, that it sort of fits in. Like, maybe, maybe this can be, these kind of things can be good. Maybe there is a black hole and there are different parts of us, different versions of us where we can really be the, the, the best that we can be. Or even the message that the person who has done nothing in their life can be the one that is going to save the universe. So I think it's, it's a really wonderful message. And uh, although it, I do feel it's still a bit long, it is uh, incredibly rewatchable and uh, contributed some of the best scenes of the year. So. Like you said, you just can't be mad at something so original and bold yeah. in that way becoming so mainstream. I mean, you know, it's easy to, you know, some uh, detractors think, you know, like this is the, the niche movie in the app, but it's not. It's so, it has become so mainstream with 11 nominations and a lot of money at the box office for what it is. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great story, this movie. And Dave, you've got our next one. Yeah, so um, All Quiet on the Western Front, it's... Um, it's made by Netflix. It's a remake of the the movie of the same name from nearly 100 years ago now, um, based on the book about World War One. Um, a group of just young German teens who sign up to serve in World War One for Germany, and then very quickly realize that that war is not the the, the hoo ha uh, walk in the park that that uh, it's sold as by by the leaders of the nation. It's 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 you know war is hell. And so that's directed by Edward Berger. Um, it really, it was an, it's an interesting ride to the Oscars for All Quiet. Um, it went from maybe this will be Netflix's international nominee to um, all of a sudden it gets uh, 14 BAFTA nominations. It wins seven, including Best Director, Best Picture. Oscar nominee morning, it gets nine picture or nine nominees, including Best Picture, International Film, um, 
you know, script, and then that's production design, cinematography, sound. Um, so it's all of a sudden this behemoth that it came from, it might get one nomination. Um, I didn't see it until January, early February, so it missed out on my, it probably would have been my top 10. But um, it's just very interesting to see something like that win the BAFTA and then clean up at the Oscar nominations. And we have to give it some, until the last bell rings on Oscar Sunday, we have to give it some weight that it's going to steal some awards, possibly from everything everywhere. It's going to throw things off. Um, in a non-Avatar year, I think this or Top Gun would be competing for visual effects. They typically had to go with the traditional, uh, the less you see, the better, as far as visual effects go. Um, but Avatar is just, you know, Avatar is a monster of its own, yeah. own creation. And so that's synonymous with special effects. So everything, I've, or not everything, uh, All Quiet, the other, the other A movie, uh, with a long title. But um, I, I, it's interesting. I don't think it's going to win Best Picture. It did not get Best Director at the Oscars. That went to another international uh, film for uh, Triangle Sadness. There, that director got in. And so it's, just, it's a weird slate for All Quiet. But it's, it's a good movie. It's very well made. It's... You know, with Dunkirk, 1917, we're getting a lot of these war movies recently, which won't help it probably, but with voters. But I think it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a good movie, and it got everything it needed to get nominated because it's very well crafted, if nothing else. I have this problem sometimes where I see a film either based on the same material or a remake of it that I can't get out of my head that previous one that I love. Uh, so this happened with Nightmare Alley a couple of years ago, and I promised myself I was going to go in to watch and completely forget that original film, but I couldn't help comparing. And that 1930 film is, is so, so devastating to me uh, that having that in mind, and I, the thing that this version does for me is it really brings you into the war, that, that they didn't have the kind of filmmaking capabilities with back in 1930, but it also uh, takes away a lot of the... Uh, build up to that the the fact that the this they were all caught up in this nationalist fervor and that they were believing in that and the fact that they were not taught to think for themselves and i think that's the big message of the entire film is that you need to think for yourselves instead of following uh, particular leaders so I, I had trouble with it and i just watched it recently so I, maybe i need to go back and watch it again but as of a first viewing i haven't gone back to watch nightmare alley the new version yet either but i don't know, I, I don't know if I you need have to, to. <laughs> uh, maybe i need to go back with a little bit more distance and and see how that uh, affects me again you guys? It's interesting to hear you bring up the, you know, what that movie changed from its original versions. Because I've heard that a lot from people um, the, and the things that it took out. Uh, people feeling that it ended up changing the ultimate message of the movie and the, you know, some of the major themes of it were, were missing. Um, and so it's interesting the fact that it got, a, you know, Best Adapted Screenplay nomination when, you know, I've heard so many complaints about its adaptation. Um, for me... <laughs> All Quiet is an impeccably made movie that I really did not like. <laughs> um, it just, like, it's it's a, an amazing spectacle. It's beautiful. It's well acted. The, you know, special effects and uh, makeup are, are incredible. But in the end, I felt like it was a war movie that we've seen before and it you know about the horrors of war like I feel like I've seen that movie before many many times um and I also admit that before I watched it uh I had read 
uh, someone's take on Letterboxd um, saying that they didn't understand the difference between this movie and a slasher film. And I love slasher films, but I was like, oh my god, yes, this is a movie, introduces a cast of young teenage characters, and then you watch them get massacred in various horrible ways, and then it ends. But then that got me spiraling because I love horror movies <laughs> and thinking about the fact that it's in a context like this that, you know, this this is great art. Um, but, you know, when it's uh, a guy in a hockey mask and a machete doing the same thing and the same story, that is junk. And that sort of got me spiraling about what, you know, what is what is what is a worthy movie? And then I feel like that ultimately ended up impacting and making me like this movie even less when maybe I would have liked it more. <laughs> but again, yeah, I, I felt like I'd seen it before. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I liked I liked this movie, um, but I do think that the craft, like you said, the craft of it is the star of the movie. And, and I do think its ascendancy into the awards race is interesting because this was not, I don't think, like you said, there's just, I don't think Netflix thought that this was something that was going to catch on. And then, and then it's got ten nominations, nine, not nine. Um, and it, uh, I think even Netflix is probably surprised <laughs> while this movie did because they were um, they were really they were really pushing Pinocchio, um, a little bit Glass Onion, and then these voting bodies decided that they had something with All Quiet on the Western Front. So I think it will win some craft, uh, craft awards, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's competitive for the best picture win. So before we get to uh, some um, predictions and, and maybe some questions at the end, we're going to move away from the best picture nominees and Adam has one that he wants to talk about. Uh, another film I loved this year is uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Um, in general, I feel like I'm a sucker for stop motion because to me, stop motion is magic. <laughs> and I will never stop being magic to me every time I see it. Um, this is uh, Guillermo del Toro working with Mark Gustafsson, uh, their adaptation, uh, sort of reimagining of the classic story uh, where uh, a father's wish magically brings uh, the wooden boy he's created to life um, and uh, gives him a chance to take care of a child after losing uh, a son of his own. Um, and I thought this movie was beautiful, both visually and its story. Uh, I feel like it's, it's the major change they make is uh, setting it in, in Italy during uh, the rise of fascism and Mussolini's Italy. And I feel like that gives it a chance to add some interesting wrinkles to the story. Um, about you know what it what it means to be good, and I feel like a lot of previous versions of the story are sort of uh, tell kids and show ways you know caution against defiant behavior, and this does the opposite and sort of depicts uh, the dangers of blind obedience and in the context of of, uh, of war and and fascism, and that added such. Such an interesting layer to the story that I don't think was was an obvious choice, and it allowed for um, the the sweetness and the darkness and the horrors of of any Guillermo del Toro movie, and I feel like that sort of allowed him to make it his own. And again, it is just stunning to look at, and uh, it's, I never got tired of, of just watching it on screen. 
Um, I I also really enjoyed the, this version of Pinocchio. I know that um, Robinson Meckes had the live action Pinocchio come out on Disney Plus uh, about a month and a half before this, and that's a that's a disaster of epic proportions of anything ever put to film. That's right. I was, gonna, I was gonna say it was, it was th- this was one of three Pinocchio movies that came out last year because I'm also counting the, the, the Pauly Shore voiced one. Yes, <laughs> that it's that's better left untouched. But um, I, I think that Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, I, I, it's it is funny. Like there's the um, when Pinocchio uh, kind of just goes into his little puppet. Like they have bless you, they have these um, little uh, what are they bugs that are uh, kind of running the the puppet afterlife um, that you see throughout the film. Um, and it's funny, as only Guillermo del Toro can do in that weird gothic sense. Um, it's stop motion animated, so it took them, I think, almost over two years of daily, just, you know, you gotta move the arm this much, this much, this much, this much. And so, um, harkening back to like the Wallace and Gromit days. Um, and the, the score is great, the, um, the effects that they had to do with it are really good. Um, I think it's it it is probably one of if not the best adaptations of Pinocchio we've seen, and I think it's because they, they were able to be brave enough to make those changes to make it and set in fascist Italy instead of late eighteen hundreds uh, Italy Italy, um, and like being saying no to a fascist and like at a academy at a military academy is a lot harder than saying no to beer and like billiards <laughs> like you do in the original Pinocchio story and so so to your point it's, it's a whole different ball game of what it is to be a kid and to get instructions from adults and what what do you listen to and what do you not and and I, I it's well voice acted uh Kate Blatchett plays a monkey and she has one line of dialogue um but she just wanted to work with Del Toro uh Christoph Waltz is really fun playing a uh his second evil European in World War II bad guy after uh after Inglorious Bastards, and so yeah, I really, li- I really like Pinocchio. I really like Pinocchio. Yeah, it's, it's great, and um, I like what I like the because Guillermo del Toro's been winning every or this movie's been winning every award, and Guillermo del Toro's taking that time to, you know, express the importance of animation, and it's you know, it's not just a you know, quote unquote, children's medium. It's something, I mean, I don't think the family behind me when I saw it was ready for all the fascism in it, but um, <laughs> I do think that, I mean, it's dark and it's sweet and it's funny. I really like this. I, it, it's absolutely 100% going to win best animated film. Um, I think it's one of the very few locks of the night. I'm a Marcel the Shell partisan, but, uh, but I love that movie too, <laughs> but I do love, I do love Pinocchio. It was really good and it's on Netflix. So it's very easy to watch. It's interesting that we brought this up right after All Quiet on the Western Front because, again, we're talking about fascism and resisting the, the, the authority, but we're also talking about adaptations of classic works and whether or not that uh, the changes made to the original work enhance or detract from it. And I think I think it's a movie only, you know, both of you touched on that Del Toro could have made. I mean, it made it so successfully in, in his own image. So I think that is, a, you know, largely why it is so good. All right, so the last film we're going to talk on, again, down the, the list a little bit, is My, my Beloved Babylon, which uh, I, was, I was really hoping would get a lot more uh, notices. But um, it's a three-hour film that 
it doesn't feel like three hours. It sort of feels long, but it's never static. I mean, the, the, the action is always going, the editing, the music, everything that contributes to that makes it feel like it's constantly going. And maybe this is possibly part of the cocaine-fueled uh, early Hollywood uh, uh, milieu that it's uh, depicting. But it's about uh, essentially um, three, three, four people, three and a half. Sidney doesn't get as much uh, screen time as he probably should have. It's about three people in the late 1920s in Hollywood who are just about to find out that sound is coming and their entire world is going to be changed. But I love the fact that it holds these two uh, ideas uh, at the same time. Yes, art in, in general and cinema in particular is this magic that's able to communicate not only thoughts but feelings uh, from one person to another. And yes, uh, rich people, especially when they're given you know, free reign, are completely terrible and can do many, many things that are unsavory. Uh, and the, all of these people are coming together, a, an actor, an actress, and who, uh, uh, someone who just wants to get into movies and ends up becoming a producer. Uh, they are all sort of on this collision with uh, not only their own reckoning, but also with the coming of sound. And I loved it so much, and I have the ability to do this. I'm actually programming a film series here at the Dryden called Before Babylon, where we're looking at some silent films uh, featuring the actors, uh, actresses, and directors who inspired some of these characters. Because it's, it's very much historical, but it's completely not. That it's, it's built around sequences. This, the first half hour is all about this party in Holly, the Hollywood Hills. The next 25 minutes are all about this first day uh, on set for Manny as he goes to uh, work. Which is my favorite section of that movie. Oh my God, it's <laughs> so good. And it's, it's, they have like five films shooting all at the same time, which is not correct. But they did <laughs> shoot outside in the early days of silent film. And there were occasions where there were musicians on set to play along with the music, but you're not gonna have five films shooting out in the field uh, with a full orchestra playing, uh, as well as uh, having all these new people come on all at the same time. So it's this madness that is captured within uh, this 25 minute sequence, and I think that's actually only one upped by the, the first day of sound. That 20 minute sequence where they're trying to get just this one shot in the can, uh, just with uh, Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, uh, trying to get her first line in this film out for the first time to the point where somebody actually dies on set because they, they just don't know how to uh, do this. So I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on this wonderful, wonderful film. <laughs> uh, Babylon is also one, one that stuck with me. Um, I don't think any, everything about it works. Um, it's a very messy movie, but I think a lot intentionally so. Uh, but it's ultimate, we, we've talked about it. For me, the ultimate takeaway um, that, I'll step back. Uh, I feel like a lot of people wrote it off as just a, a Hollywood making a movie about Hollywood, which you know is, of course, it's going to get awards attention. And of course, it's another movie in a long line of, of similar themed movies. But I, for me, the the ultimate takeaway of the movie was that movies are are incredible and movies are magic, but the business that is responsible for making those movies is literally hell <laughs> and is responsible for the exploitation and destruction of so many people. Yeah. 
And I think that's that's ultimately what I took away. And it stuck with me because that's something I I do think about a lot when I watch movies is, you know, the nature of Hollywood. There are a lot of a lot of ugly things about it. And I so a movie that tries to wrestle with that, um, I really respected and really, really enjoyed a, a lot of aspects of that. And, they, you know, sort of even trying to grapple with that. Um, I, I also love Babylon. I think I think it's going to age very very well. Um, I, Damien Chazelle, who did La La Land, he says that he said that La La Land is the love letter to Hollywood, and then Babylon is the angry letter to the editor. And so um, it's and he said it's a love letter for movies and a um, I think he said like a condemnation of Hollywood. Um, and, I, and I would agree. And it's Babylon is a lot. And in the first five minutes, there's an elephant, you know pooping on people and it's 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 a weird movie and if it has flaws which it does um it is that it's too long it's too gratuitous and um just it does some of the scenes go on too long because they're essentially vignettes like you were getting at that being said none of those flaws really mattered to me i think that um so much of what's good stuck with me with babylon i think brad pitt gives one of the better performances of his career um, there's a scene he has with Gene Smart that I, and you know, I've seen, I saw the movie in beginning of December. So we're approaching what, three months now, if my math is correct, two months, four months, time's not, time hasn't been real in a while, but, um, it, that scene has stuck with me about the, the impact that movies can have on people and on generations and how, when we watch a movie, we'll watch a Cary Grant movie from, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago, everyone in that film is dead. And yet we're talking about them and we're experiencing something, we're sharing a moment with them. And I think that that's what Chazelle really wanted to get across. And he wanted to, you know, he was given $100 million and he said, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to have these big, wild parties and, you know, I'm going to have my, my Stanley Kubrick and I'm going to eat it too. And so, <laughs> and so I think that, yeah, could it have been trimmed down? And would that have helped it at the box office where it bombed? Would that help it for people that are kind of on the fence? It's like, absolutely. But at the end of the day, I think to get a movie that is so clearly a director's vision is so rare, especially when a studio gives them $100 million. And Paramount had a great year. They had a bunch of sleeper hit horror films. They had Top Gun. So they can afford a, a slip up that will, I, I think it'll age well. I think that Babylon is one of those that in 15, 20 years, it'll be one of the ones that every you know film student in college has the poster on the wall. And they're trying to be edgy and cool because <laughs> they liked Babylon when it came out. And so I, I, I think Babylon is going to age well. And then, yeah. Matt? <laughs> I feel like I have to say sorry. I feel it's like I have to. Fine. I feel like I have to say sorry again. Um, the last act of Babylon, I think, is so strong, and I think it becomes a, uh, a slower movie. I think. It, I think it really gets into a rhythm of what the movie is about, which, like you said, is the transition from silent to the talkies. And I think. I think the melancholy that takes over the movie makes it a strong movie. I just. I had a really hard time thinking everything that came before it was worth that great <laughs> ending. The ending is very divisive. Something that does happen in the end has um, been uh, talked about a lot, but I, I really like the very last shot, the last act, the conversation Brad Pitt has with Gene Smart. I think that, I think that is really the spirit, the spirit of the movie. I think the first two acts is just Damien Chazelle throwing a lot of money against the wall and not all of it sticking. Um, so I will never have a Babylon poster on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you like the, the end mount? There's, because there is, there is an ending thing without spoiling for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, 
And when I saw it, I loved it, and I thought everyone was going to love it. And then my other friend saw Babylon, and she texted me and said, like, how awful was that ending? And I was like, <laughs> I, I don't comprehend what you're saying. Like, it's, I thought it was great. So did you like the ending of Babylon? You're talking about the, um, the whole montage? Yeah, like the, yeah, the very ending. I did, but that's an, uh, in keeping with what I feel like it's, some aspects of the movie got misread by people. Mm-hmm. Like I saw a lot of takes of, like, it ends with this sappy montage of movies and how, the, and how they've evolved over time. And to me, there were some other things going on there. I didn't think it was just like, wow, look at this. This is amazing. I thought it was also supposed to be kind of a monstrosity when you're looking at like this cacophony of images and noise and things. And I don't think the expression on uh, the character's face at the end is just automatically happy. I think there are some more more things to read into that. So so it worked for me. Nice. Um, I was I was actually going to ask you, Jared, that you brought up when you were talking about Top Gun, sort of a, one of your your dings against it was that it ripped off some other movies. Yeah. And I was curious, like Babylon, like blatantly, clearly rips off some other movies. Oh yeah. Um, like I mean, most notably the Singing in the Rain, um, but there's an entire sequence with Tobey Maguire that is like almost lifted directly from Boogie Nights. So I was just curious how what what worked in this case versus in Top Gun. I think what the way that I read it was that there was a lot of inspiration from previous films, but that once he took that inspiration, he turned it into something completely different. So you can tell that Nellie Leroy is Clara Bow, and you know that uh, Ruth Adler is Dorothy Arzner, but having them on that, that set and having them act in that way is completely not the way that anything happened. So if you're coming at it at a very literalist point of view or historical accuracy, you're, you're gonna come away just completely frustrated. But if you come at it with that, a knowledge of film history, but also an understanding that what Chazelle is putting on screen is not what it was, it's just sort of everything all at once. <laughs> um, but I, I like the fact, actually, as I was watching it that first time, there were hints of that Singing in the Rain connection that echoed with me, but I didn't place them specifically until the end of that film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, that's where I, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's where I know that from. Um, but the fact that he has made a film, well, Singing in the Rain was a film about the change from uh, silent to sound, but it was made in the 50s, and he's making a film that was taking place at that same transition, but then influences the creation of that film in the middle, which I think is really an interesting, to say the least, way to sort of structure that. So you're playing with time in in both directions, sort of. You're referencing Singing in the Rain to make your film about that, that past event, but that Singing in the Rain was made about that past event at the same time and influencing now your movie that you're making, reflecting back. So We're going to need a flow chart. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, Damien Chazelle does not, he wears his influences on his sleeve because, yeah. I mean, he, during the La La Land run, which I love, and he, I mean, he was not shy that he was making a Jacques Demy, you know, he was making yeah. Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So, I mean, he wears his influences and he wears them proudly. And I think that's, you know, that's probably why people are like, oh, it's like, ripping off singing in the rain and you know so i think he goes in knowing that and he makes those clear and and i think that there is a difference between like being inspired by and homaging to and then you know i was like <laughs> borrowing like you look at <laughs> you look at like something like joker um which tries to be let's like, todd phillips directed the hangover um trying to be scorsese with a taxi driver and a can of comedy 
And that just comes off because he's not, all due respect to Todd Phillips, he is not a good enough director to pull off what Martin Scorsese can do. Damien Chazelle isn't trying, I think, to reinvent Singing in the Rain. I think he's trying to be, like, show an homage to it and show, like, either in Babylon's case, what was building to it, and then in La La Land's case, like, what built from it. And so I think that you can usually tell when they're homaging it or when they're ripping it off. And I, I don't think, like you said, I don't think Chazelle's hiding that he's trying. Like, everyone has seen Singing in the Rain. He's not going to get away with it, so. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the part where we're going to do a little bit of will, will win and should win for the, the top six categories of the film, uh, of the Academy Awards. And then um, hopefully we'll take some questions if you have anything else at the end of this very long session uh, to add to it. Uh, but uh, we'll start with Best Supporting Actor, where the nominees are Brendan Gleeson for The Banshees of Incheren, Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Keoghan for The Banshees of Incheren, and Ki Huai Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. So let's start at the end of the table. Adam. <laughs> uh, I will preface this by saying I am always terrible at predictions. So take, <laughs> what, I'm yeah, take <laughs> what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Um, I... I think Ki Hoi Kwan um, is going to take it, um, both because it's an amazing performance, and as we've talked about already on this panel, it's his story is is an amazing one, um, and I feel like that that counts for a lot in the end when it comes to voting. Um, so I think he's going to win, um, and I would be happy with that. Um, a close second for me, I feel like I, I would love Brendan Gleeson to 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 win because yeah, he's incredible, um, and it's a, a fantastic performance, but. I think it's it's keys uh, to own. <laughs> Matt? Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with that. I think Ki Kwan is probably the 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 strongest lock of the acting category, the only lock of the acting categories <laughs> this year. Um, I, I my personal favorite is Brennan Gleason, but like I've said a couple times, I just I think you know this year is kind of a fun year where there's not really a turnout that's gonna be like why'd that win? So. Um, I do like Brendan Gleeson. I think he, he played a good grump, and I always like that in the movie. Uh, he does good grump. He yes. does a good grump. <laughs> uh, Copy-paste, I think. I think Kiwakwan uh, is, he's got the story, which you know some voters base more off, like, would it be a fun story or could come back or whatever. If this person wins, he's good in the movie. He's in the film that's going to win Best Picture. Uh, I would also say Brendan Gleeson's my two. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry isn't, even I don't know if he'll get. A, I mean, he will get a vote, but he's a distant fifth place. But he was in my top five for Causeways, which is an Apple TV with Jennifer Lawrence. Um, I think if something crazy happens, maybe Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans wins. He's not going to, but if something crazy happened, they like giving career wins out every now and again. And The Fablemans' body, once the writing's on the wall, it's not going to win much. They might put all their eggs into the Judd Hirsch basket. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that coming, but. If it's not going to be key, it's going to be something really weird, and the most logical weird thing would be the the career win. Mm. Yeah, I I I think we've talked about before. This is a really solid year, especially for the nominations, and I like all of these performances. Um, if I would, if I, if it wasn't Ki Hua Kwan that that I would choose for uh, my will win, it might be actually Barry Keoghan, just in terms of the character that he played, and I, I know how much different it was. I, but they're all strong performances, even in Causeway, which I don't think a little, whole lot about it as a film. But I do think uh, Ki Hua Kwan is going to win that that award. 
And it'll be it'll be a great moment. It'll be a great moment yeah. and a great speech. Well deserved too. So and as good as Brian Tyree Henry is in Causeway, he'll he'll show up again in future years. Like yeah. he's given right. amazing performance after amazing performance. Absolutely. So we'll see him again. Widows too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. So for best supporting actress, we have Angela Bassett for Black Panther: Wakanda Forever, Hong Chao for The Whale. Carrie Condon for The Bad Cheese of Anna Sharon, and uh, the two nominees from Everything Everywhere All at Once, Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Hsu. So, Matt, we'll start with you this time. This one's interesting because I think that the attention towards um, the longtime veterans of Jamie Lee Curtis and Angela Bassett, I think the attention there is now getting kind of split, which I do think will... I do think that will make a case for a Carrie Condon win for Banshees of Inishirin, and I think she's a should win too. She's she's just she puts those silly boys in their place in that movie. <laughs> um, I I hate to keep you know I'll I'll click delete, but um I I'd also say Carrie Condon. She was my number one supporting actress of the year. Um, I if I had to choose and I had to take money out of the bank right now, I would still say Angela Bassett wins for Black Panther. I think that that movie has the momentum as far as just, you know, it's easily watchable on Disney. I mean, Banshees, you can watch on HBO, but like every voter, they're going to have kids that want to watch Black <laughs> Panther. They're going to know Angela Bassett for, you know, a 30, 40 year career. Um, she's, she's good in the movie. Um, so I, I think I'd be hard pressed if either of the Everything Everywhere women win, that being uh, Stephanie and uh, Jamie Lee. But um, I'm hoping Carrie Condon right uh, right now. I would say Angela Bassett, but I'm I'm not confident in in anything. So I think I'm I'm somewhere with you in terms of uh, I, I actually I think that despite its problems, uh, I did really like Angela Bassett in in Wakanda Forever, and uh, I think that of them, I, again, it's a strong category. Um, but I would probably, for myself, vote for Angela Bassett, and I think that she will win in that category as well. Adam? Uh, I, if you had asked me like a week or so ago, I would have said that Angela Bassett was going to win, and I, she probably would... I, I would be happy with that. I can't say she would get my vote because I already said that Stephanie Hsu was my favorite nomination that uh, out of the entire you know year. Um, but she's, she's great in it. You believe her as a queen, um, and she, you know as we've said, has uh, had an amazing career and probably should have an armful of awards already that she yeah, right. deserves. Um, but I've been surprised that I've been in my feed. I feel like the consensus has started to build around Jamie Lee Curtis winning, which kind of surprises me on one hand, but kind of not uh, just being an industry veteran, uh, you know, widely beloved. Um, but I just, I can't work up a whole lot of enthusiasm for that performance um, as good as it is is for for the type of performance and the character she's playing but i mean out of that movie you don't come away going wow jamie lee curtis really stunned me in that movie yeah but it seems to be like that that may end up happening did she get nominated for fish called wanda no this is her first nomination she had um i think one of their sag for true lies and a couple baftas and four globes nominations but First, first Oscar, even just being Oscar nominee Jamie Lee Curtis, I think is is a cool thing we can hang our hats on, if nothing else. <laughs> she, she's she's just interested in cheering the movie on. I mean, if you're watching her in the interview, she's not, I mean, she'll applaud for, you know, whoever wins that kid. I mean, she just wants to see this movie get seen. Um, you know, we'll talk about actress in a little bit. She's, you know, I think become Michelle Yeoh's campaign manager. <laughs> um, so, yeah. 
Well, and she seems to be such an incredible person as well. I think uh, her interaction with Rochester-based Fright Rags is uh, <laughs> an indication of that, just how much she's willing to support yeah. uh, smaller businesses and, and particularly things that she's interested in. Uh, but from a, a cynical point of view, if we're talking about diversity, wouldn't this be the award uh, that would signal that for Angela? Yeah, because, I mean, that's pretty much, you know, how the nominations felt. That would probably be the one acting win. And, I mean, Angela Bassett, she should have won for What's Love Got to Do With It? So she should have her Oscar already. Right. But, um, yeah, she will. That'll be, that's just another one that's going to be, she's great in the movie, and it'll be a great Oscar moment. Um I just really came away from Banshee's really liking Carrie Condon. And I think no matter what your opinion on the Marvel movies, I think it is it is interesting and cool that a Marvel movie will that even got an acting nomination, much less uh, you know, would win one. We've seen some comic book wins with Heath Ledger for Dark Knight, um, you know, Joaquin Phoenix for the Joker. But um for her to get it for a straight comic book movie it would also be interesting. Um yeah, I, I hope Carrie Condon pulls it off, but we've had, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis won say, Carrie Condon won BAFTA, Angela Bassett won the Globe. So it's it's wild. Out <laughs> it's there. a race. Yeah. So best actor, we have Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell for the Banshees of Inisherin, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Paul Mescal for After Sun, which we showed here, and Bill Nye for Living. Let's start with Dave. Um, if you asked me uh, two weeks ago, I would have said Austin Butler. If you asked me... Two or two weeks ago, I would have seen Kyle Farrell. Last week, I would have said Austin Butler. Now, I think after winning SAG, Brendan Fraser is the definition frontrunner. But it could be. I, I'm still leaning Austin Butler for Elvis. I think that he's doing the rounds. I think it's the most, uh, you know, acceptable movie and palatable movie for a mainstream audience. Most people have seen it. Elvis is technically the most streamed of all the Best Picture nominees. It's got like 2.7 billion minutes watched on HBO. Um, but I think that uh, it's a very, very tight race between Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser. And, that, you know, Colin Farrell could win, too. Him not winning the BAFTA, I think, kind of threw his chances a little bit. But And Bill Nye is great. And we talk about, you know, career nominations. Bill Nye in um, Living is really, very good. And then Paul Mescal getting in for uh, After Sun, which I know you're more of a champion, so I'll let you, you talk about that. But I think if – I think Austin Butler – uh, should of these, I'd say Colin Farrell should. He was my number, my number one on the year for actor. But I, I think it's really interesting how social media has changed the way that we talk about the awards race because we've been hearing about Brendan Fraser for six months now. Right. It was the early September when it premiered, when the whale premiered at TIFF, and since then, Austin um, Butler has really come on as a strong contender, but I feel like maybe that, that steam is running out as well. So uh, even though I might vote for Palma Scal as my favorite and should win, I'm gonna go for Colin Farrell with the upset uh, will we'll win uh, for best actor. Adam? I think it's gonna be Brendan Fraser, um, just because you know he's been cleaning up um, in all the sort of precursors and Hollywood loves a comeback story. I feel like him and Kihoi Kwan this year, um, you, you can't deny that it's it's good to see their faces back on screen again. And again, I feel like that counts for a lot. Uh, Colin Farrell would probably be my personal choice, though. Yeah, I would I would vote for Colin Farrell. He was He's my favorite in that category. And um, Paul Mescal right behind him. Um, I think what, I think especially in Best Actor, what is in uh, working in Austin Butler's favor is they they love a musical biopic and um 
I mean, it, just in that category alone, since like 2010, seven of the winners have been based on real people. So that uh, that <laughs> I know. <laughs> so that that works in his favor, but they they're also not always so keen to give to a younger actor as they are an an actress. So I think it I think Brennan Fraser has escaped a lot of the criticisms criticisms of the whale, which is in a very strong movie. Um, so I I do think he'll pull it off, but I I mean it, it's Austin Butler's really close too, and I like I said I I mean. Uh, the populace of Elvis will help him, and also that they really like, for some reason, in that category specifically, they really like when you play someone real. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, best actress. We've got Kate Blanchett in Tar, Anna de Armas in Blonde, Andrea Riesborough in Two Leslie, Michelle well- Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Adam, we're back to you. Uh, I'm going to say will and should one Michelle Yeoh. Um, I talked about when we talked about the film that it's such a showcase for her and it would be, it would be amazing to see her take it, even though I feel like Kate Blanchett is, is right there with her. Um, but I'm, I'm really pulling for Michelle Yeoh cause I, I just love that performance so much. You're, you're straight underdogs all the way down the ballot. <laughs> I, I think I think Michelle Yeoh. I mean, it's been it's been pretty said and done that Kate Blanchett would be winning her third with Tar, and and I, it's my favorite performance of the year. I mean, I just I I would love Kate Blanchett to win, but I mean, Michelle Yeoh is so good in Everything Everywhere, and I think that the momentum is is in her is in her favor, and I think she will win. And it's a great performance; can't be mad at it. But Kate Blanchett is my favorite. I mean, she just she just reinvents herself every movie she does. Uh, it's close. I think Canon will Michelle. I think Michelle Yeoh pulls it off. I think not having any wins compared to Kate having two, I think is good one puts her over again. She's in the best picture race. Tar is more than likely less liked and less seen by the voters. And so I think Michelle Yeoh has all the extra things to kind of get her over that final hump. But I mean, it could be Kate Blanchett and it, I wouldn't blink. So I think, I think Ken should will Michelle, but Again, it's outside of supporting actor. It's it's all a toss-up. Well, I, I am in the minority on all of these categories. who so do not pick anything that I say. But uh, I'm going to say uh, should win, will win Kate Blanchett for her third. I think that uh, the the Academy, as as said, it's well. No, everyone's voting on on, on these uh, categories, so it, it may be that that comeback story that we see in every category. Can we see that in every category uh, this year? But uh, with Kiwi Kai Kwan and and Brendan Fraser and Michelle Yeoh uh, finally getting that recognition, but uh, Kate Blanchett absolutely deserves, and I think that the 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 field will recognize that as well. So, Best Director of the Year, we've got Martin McDonough for Banshees of Inisherin, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheiner, known as The Daniels, for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, and Ruben Ostlin for Triangle of Sadness. It's 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 going to be a Everything, Everywhere night. I think The Daniels will take it. Um, there's been talk about, you know, uh, that scrappy underdog Steven Spielberg, will he win his third directing Oscar? And I don't, I don't think that'll come to pass, but... Um, I do think it'll be the Daniels and should win Todd Field. <laughs> Todd Field. I mean, it's just he should win for Tar. It's just amazing what he did with that movie. Um, short, sweet, to the point. I mean, it's going to be the Daniels um, of them. Uh, I'd probably go Martin McDonough. I think the balancing, the amount of tones in Banshees and Sharon is a struggling. It's a it's a tough uh, t- tightrope to walk. Um, 
if maybe Spielberg can do an upset, but I think should win, McDonough will win. I think Daniels is pretty not it's not a safe bet, but it's a it's a you know, it's a well to do bet. Well, at least I, I'm in the conversations anyway. Uh, if we were going to vote for my favorite film, it would probably be Todd Field. I think probably the Daniels have done the most in terms of direction, what, what they've actually done with the film. But I'm going to go with Steven Spielberg. I think that you know, people really feel that this personal vision of his is uh, a way to recognize him late in his career. He's still trailing behind uh, John Ford, who has four best director uh, wins, and William Wyler, who has three. And uh, if we're talking about uh, Tom Cruise saving cinema, Steven Spielberg's been there for almost 50 years now, giving us uh, films to to talk about. Adam. Yeah, uh, for me, Should Win is my, my personal choice would be Steven Spielberg, just because I loved that movie. And it's such a personal story that I feel he brought so much to and, and made it, I, in my opinion, the best version of that story we possibly could have gotten. Um, although Todd Field would be a close second for me, though I would probably give him screenplay just because I, I think it's an impeccably written film. Um, but I think the Daniels, in the end, are, are going to take it. And I, yeah, that's, everything everywhere is such a, I feel like it's weird to say this early in their career, but it's it's such a Daniels movie based on what they've made so far. Like there is sort of an, a tourist component to what they did. And I, I think that's going to be recognized. Okay, so the big one, best picture. We've got All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar the Way of Water, Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Uh, uh, my pick would be for Top Gun and then for Banshees, uh, and they both have, I mean, we're talking pitch black dark horse chances, but they have a dark horse chance of winning. Um, I think it's, I think everything everywhere is pretty safe. I think we could be looking at a Titanic level of it's going to win almost everything it's nominated for. It probably won't win song. It probably won't win, you know, every one of the actings, but, um, I think if we're looking at a, a sweep that we haven't seen in a while, um, so that being said, uh, I think Top Gun could win if, like, you know, that populist kind of feeling. Because everyone just, you know, because preferential battles weird. So if a couple people don't have everything everywhere as their one or two and they have Top Gun there, everyone should probably have Top Gun in the top one, two, three, four. And so that could end up helping a film like Top Gun's chances. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if Todd Field somehow sneaks up and gets director like the secret ballot say if Kate Blanchett wins we could be looking at maybe a little bit different going into the final couple awards but I think everything everywhere is relatively safe as far as all this goes but my vote would go for Top Gun it's, it's very easy for me best film of the year was Tar and with the preferential ballot everything everywhere all at once is going to take it Adam for me Will and shit is everything everywhere that, that movie was was such a, for me, it was the movie of the year. Like the the reaction to it, the response, the the way people loved that movie, and, and as you said, the first time we watched it, uh, just knowing immediately, like this this is gonna be this is gonna be something. Um, so yeah, and it would be such an it's such an interesting winner. Like as I said before, like if you had asked, you know, if the movie with hot dog fingers <laughs> was going to be the best picture of the year in the Academy's eyes, I. I wouldn't have believed you, but I think it's going to happen. Yeah, I think everything everywhere will win. I mean, it's just, it seems kind of undeniable at this point, but, you know, for with the preferential ballot in play, Top Gun could get 
uh, no, I mean, I just, um, you know, all of Hollywood loved Top Gun and what it did for movies and uh, cinema. And um, so I do think that it is in play to win, but I do think it'll be everything everywhere. And then obviously I'm got my tar flag flying. Team tar. <laughs> Team tar. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got uh, a few minutes before four o'clock, and I don't know if uh, Alyssa's out there. Uh, if anybody has any questions, Alyssa's got a microphone. You can talk into the microphone for the panel. If not, we can. Oh, we've got one right up here, Alyssa. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know what I was going to say, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. Um, I look at this as four men talking. I want to hear what you think about um, women talking. I doubt that it would win um, Best Picture, but nobody said anything about it, and I just saw it. It was pretty amazing. I, th I think Sarah Polly, the, the writer-director, I think she's going to take the adapted screenplay uh, Oscar for that. It's just it seems that you know it's all, it only does, has two nominations, which doesn't show strong support. I, I think the movie is very good, and I, I doesn't show strong support in the Academy uh, for this movie that it's only got two nominations, but I do think she's going to take adapted screenplay. So it'll be honored hopefully that way. Uh, I think it's interesting because it seemed like woman talking got um, a globe nomination for score. It got um, each actress like showed up at one different award show. So while, while Matt said there wasn't like, you know, a strong industry support, it seemed like there was a little bit at every single show. They just couldn't get all their eggs into the proper baskets. Uh, the fact that it got a best picture nomination, I think is it's, you know, a testament to that people did like the film and that, um, you know, that they, you know, people, people like yourself, as you're a fan of the film, so you can kind of wear that badge proudly. Like a couple of years ago, I was a fan of The Father, and then The Father kind of, you know, it snuck in and got its Best Picture nomination. Um, and that's just, it's kind of, you know, we, we like to be upset when movies we don't like it don't get nominated. So it's kind of nice when a movie you do like gets that, that Best Picture, that actor or anything. Um, I wasn't huge in woman talking. I think it's very well made and very well acted. I I think it's shot very ugly. I think it's they did like a weird color palette that was distracting to me. Um, that being said, I think that it's it's a uh, it's not a race. It's a marathon as far as trying to get some of these women projects and like minority led projects and everything uh, to the forefront. And so it's unfortunately it's a you have to chip at it. It's not going to come down in one day, but um, yeah, so as far as why we didn't discuss it, I think just has two nominations. It won't win Best Picture. It will probably win script. I think that or Quiet Place will win script. So it will be able to hang its hat on that. Yeah, I think it, yeah, Women Talking is up there with uh, my one of my favorite films of the year, and I probably would have picked it uh, to talk about, um, but I decided to go with one that was nominated for Best Picture that I didn't think was going to get attention and one that um, was you know not as not as nominated and didn't get one of the, the best picture nominees. Um, but no, I, I thought it was uh, excellent and just left me a sobbing emotional mess when I saw <laughs> it and the ensemble acting is great. And again, probably overlooked on my part, I, I picked the decision to leave as the biggest snub. I think Sarah Polly for direction was also up there and that I, I think she deserved a nomination there. I think uh, she's an amazing filmmaker and I, I've loved everything she's done pretty much from stories we tell to away from her. Um, Take This Waltz uh, is, is the only one I haven't seen, but everything I've seen of hers um, has been phenomenal. So I hope that she's, she's a filmmaker that continues to show up and, and get her due. 
And, and let me echo sentiments up here as well. I, I loved Women Talking, and that's why I wanted to point out the fact that the score wasn't nominated and play that score for you uh, as you came in tonight. But uh, the, I also loved All My Puny Sorrows, which is also based on a book by that same author, Canadian author. I'm not going to remember her name. But that came out a few years ago with Alison Pill, and I thought that was really strong as well. But I, I saw that one uh, with my wife as well, and we both were very struck with, with how well and effective how we made an effect that that was. Anybody else? Any questions? Yes, ma'am. In the beginning, you talked about the history of the number of best movies ranging from five to ten and so seven. To twelve, actually. How <laughs> about why haven't the number of best actors and best actresses increased as correlation to that? Well, I, yeah, I think we touched on that a little bit. I think five has been a magic number for not just the Oscars, but a lot of different awards shows. And uh, I think the, the length of the shows is probably part of it, but also the fact that it, it strives to be an uh, exclusive community. You know, these are the best of the year. So by lengthening those lists, it tends to as, as Adam pointed out, maybe water it down a little bit by putting more people in there. But any other thoughts? Um, I would just say it's, I don't know a diplomatic way to say it, but I feel like just, you know, it's, you can easily probably say 10 great movies making a year. It's harder to find 10 great, like, male actor performances that you think would maybe be Oscar worthy. And I hate to try and qualify it by saying that. Because there are some movies like, like last year I loved the movie Scream, I don't think Scream is going to get any Oscar nominations anytime soon. Um, so I think it's mostly just that the kind of like like uh, we we said earlier. I think just the it being the five is that magic number, and it's kind of just easier to open up ten pictures because like the normal movie going population might think of a like picture when they see it. Like oh, I love this movie. I love Babylon. They might not be like dissecting, oh, I love this performance, I love the cinematography. So the inside Hollywood, I think it's easier for the actors to find five actors and is the entire, because movie is, like we said, it's voting, everyone's voting in the movie, only the actors and the editors are voting for the actors and the editors. So I think it's a little bit of just the inside baseball of Hollywood, um, trying to pat themselves on the back a little bit with, look at all these movies we made. <laughs> uh, Matt, anything to add? And it just, the well, best picture I think used to be 10 back in the four. Like, I think Casablanca won when it was nominated right, against yeah. there was, 10. There was uh, 12. This, pay attention because you may need this information next week. Back in 34 <laughs> and 35, there were 12 pictures nominated. That was the most. And I just think the picture going back to, you know, more than five was just such a direct response to in 08 when The Dark Knight didn't get nominated and so that was that's why we were seeing it now it was such a I mean it wasn't why you know no certain performance was excluded because that happens every year that you know that people champion but it was a direct it was a direct response to excluding blockbusters essentially but even back then there was only five nominees for each act yes yep. yeah any other questions from us for us as we can tell you uh, that we want you to see as many of these Best Picture Academy Award nominees as, as uh, on the screen as you can. You can still see Women Talking right down the street with our friends at the Little Theater, as well as all of the shorts nominated in the animated, live action, and documentary categories. 
And starting on Monday, both Cinemark Tinseltown and Gates and Regal Eastview and Victor are bringing back all of the Best Picture nominees, but they aren't showing each one every day, so you have to check their schedule before you head out to make sure you're getting the right movie in the right time. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is streaming on Netflix, and Babylon is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. So if you miss them in the theaters, you can find them there. Uh, but I want to uh, f uh, make sure to thank all of our panelists for coming from the Greater Western New York Film Critics Association, but also individually uh, for coming. And uh, if you can tell us where, I, I know we all have active letterboxed accounts, uh, but if, if there's somewhere else where we can find your writing. I'll start on that. Yeah. I'll, I'll start. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DavePalmer41. Um, my reviews are therealdealreviews.com. Um, and then I'm on Letterboxd. I don't know what my, my name is. But uh, yeah, so I appreciate you guys coming out. It's always fun to talk Oscars and just movies, movies in general. It's just, it's fun. My name is Matthew Passantino. I write for BigPictureBigSound.com. I do just my weekly reviews there. And um, yeah, thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm Adam Lubito. Uh, you can find me on social um, in those places uh, <laughs> by under that name. Um, not a whole lot uh, of ways to find my current writing. I used to be the critic for City Newspaper. Um, but you can find me as a frequent guest on the, the Littles podcast, Movies at a Microphone. <laughs> um, I'm also the program director for a film festival in Tallinn called Anomaly. Um, so uh, you can also find me there, anomalyfilmvest.com. Now it's time to thank all of you for coming to our inaugural Dryden Roundtable. Thank you so much. Please uh, keep your eye out for the next ones that are coming up in the year. Thank you guys. Thank you.